for the week of August 27th, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 628, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, trying to get that monkey off my back, I'm Michael Gilds. I don't think you mean an actual monkey, by the way. No, that's right. I'm at the rehab center, Sperling, and I just want to be honest about that. Okay. Again, I think a little clarification is required. You're helping your mother recover uh, from her Tommy John surgery, so she is rehabbing so she can pitch for the Los Angeles Dodgers because all of their pitchers I wish. now have Tommy John surgery. Yeah, I wish, I wish. No, she's in rehab after having sepsis, after having a stent put in. Uh, She's still recovering, doing great. Uh, It's been about three weeks now in the rehab center, and I've been sleeping on a cot in the room. That's fun. But uh, she's really doing better every day. I mean, she's 94, and remarkably, she may have a full recovery. I I thought she would, unfortunately, come back, you know, pretty diminished and maybe have a poor quality of life. But uh, fingers crossed, it looks like uh, she's going to be doing great. That's Still got to get that kidney stone out of her, but that's good. So she's doing great, and happily, she's covered by Medicare and Medicaid, so no big medical bills so far. Uh, But I know you just spent the weekend blowing your life savings. As also known as taking your child to college. Yes, uh, actually, you're you're absolutely right. I, I took my co- uh, child to college. You took your college to child. Yes, I did both actually. Um, at which point I realized, is it legal for for a college to put two people in a room this small? Number one, uh, and wow. Kids bring a lot of junk to college these days. How is it all going to fit in there? But this well, was in New York at Fordham University. And I uh, spent some time downtown, as they say, on Broadway, uh, because they say the lights are... It was so keep easy, going. So much what better. shows did you see? What shows did you I, see? I, I saw Kimberly Akimbo. Ooh, I haven't seen that. How was it? It was very good. And uh, if I were a movie producer, I'd be walking out of that, getting on the phone with a couple of agents and going... Get me those rights. That's right. that's being turned into a movie tomorrow. I can't. I can't imagine it's not optioned. Oh, I'm sure it is. Oh, absolutely. It must be. I mean, you'll just look and, at it. yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I and saw then the, the other show. Yes, yeah. the show that everybody must see 100. percent Not once. Not twice. Three times. You need to see it three times at least. <laughs> because you need to see it from all different parts of the of of the ah. arena. No, for, of of the theater. I mean, this show here lies love is like going to a disco, a nightclub, a Broadway show, all rolled into one. You are a, I, I, I had floor seats, as they say, which meant I was standing the whole time. And it's Michael, only 90 minutes. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah, it's very fast. But like literally, I'd be watching something on the front stage. There'd be something happening on the backstage. There's screens everywhere. There's, you know, amazing music. And all of a sudden, the person next to you is a performer. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, this show. It's totally worth seeing. This is the David Byrne Fat Boy Slim musical about Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. Yes. It shows you the allure of strongmen, rulers, and how you can get sucked into their pitch of, oh, let me take care of everything. I'm there for you. And then how it can curdle and turn. Uh, I saw it at the public years ago. It was a terrific show. Now we're used to immersive shows on Broadway and ripping out all the seats and making it happen. They had to completely redo the theater the show is playing in, but it works a charm. So you're getting what you got at the public. You can just walk around and see the show from every angle. There are seats upstairs if you want to look down on the action, and that works pretty well too. But if you can stand for 90 minutes, it's really great to see it that way. 
Uh, I'm glad you liked it. How did it play? There's there was some question of whether the show was glorifying the Marcoses, which I thought, uh, no. But how did it play today with the uh, you know another twenty thirty years under its belt? Well, uh, I think that you wow another twenty or thirty years. You saw twenty years. Well, it was in the nineties. I saw it in the nineties, I believe. Yeah. Oh wow, okay. Maybe uh, I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I thought yeah, it was in it the two thousand. But anyway, uh, yeah. it, it plays. Uh, it definitely does not glorify them. It definitely kind of says no. They're strong men, and all these people die. And especially uh, the uh, Kino when he comes back to the Philippines and he is, I'm not giving anything away, by the way, this is all history, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he comes back to the Philippines, the the kind of exiled uh, opposition leader, and he doesn't even make it off the plane before he is assassinated uh, right there on the tarmac. Um, and so, yeah, definitely doesn't glorify it. And the final song uh, is played by the quote unquote DJ of the of the show and the reality is he gets to say now the epilogue hey guess what the current leader of Ugh. of the philippines is the son of ferdinand and imelda marco so if you think it can't happen again guess what it can who was elected yes. you know through a democratic election and said oh my father and mother were you know shamed it was a whole lie they were wonderful even though they stole like Hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars. Billions of dollars. Killed people, tortured people. And I have a connection to Philippines. I have a, a very good family friend who was there for many years. And my sister goes there all the time to, uh, to recruit nurses for work overseas. But uh, So I'm quite wrong, though. It was in 2013 when it was first staged off Broadway. It began in 2006, but it's only been a decade. It just felt like a long time. <laughs> so it's only been about 10 years, but it made it to Broadway. I'm glad you had a lot of fun. So that's very cool to see. So speaking of hits... The number one song in the country for another week is Rich Men North of Richmond, but I got to get the performer's name right. That's why I'm saying it now. It's actually Oliver Anthony Music. Now, I, you see it multiple ways, uh, you know, but it's, he's sometimes credited as Oliver Anthony. Sometimes his stage name is Oliver Anthony Music. So, you know, we all know who we're talking about. And even before all the political back and forth that happened since our last show, uh, I did read that he talked openly about dealing with mental health issues and other stuff. And I thought, wow, I hope this guy has a strong support system with the people who knew him when, because all this attention, which you might think is really positive, has got to be very, very stressful. And in fact, he's posted some videos annoyed that People, Republican candidates were talking about his song and claiming it as their own. Not that he identifies with the Democrats. There's like, no, a pox on all their houses, he says. But he's crying in the video. Uh, you know, you just hope the guy may not have liked a lot about his song, but I hope he's getting the support that he needs, you know, because you think failure is hard. Sometimes success can be really hard, too. I'll never forget the day that in 1994, April 1994, that... Uh that Kurt Cobain committed suicide and Michael mm -hmm. Stipe uh, was on the radio. I know that's kind of a weird thought these days. Uh, he was on the radio. The radio still exists. Uh, and yeah. he said, look, you know, I, 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 I tried to reach out to him several times, but I knew that if R.E.M. had become that famous that quickly when I was 24, which is- mm -hmm. It would have been hard. I would have been, yeah, I would have, I, I probably wouldn't be alive today. Yeah, well, that's that's true. It is really hard. It seems you know silly to say in a way, but it's it's true. And not that we believe Oliver Anthony is in crisis as such, but you're posting videos on Facebook breaking down in tears. Uh, that that's not easy. That's not fun. It's good that he can show his emotions and be happy to post it. But you also hope that he's got the support he needs. We've 
seen too much stuff in the past with Amy Winehouse and Sinead O'Connor and others that, you know, mental health is health. So, you know, hope he's going to, by the way, we have a link in our show notes. We had linked last week to a answer song in a way by Billy Bragg. And now there's an interview with Billy Bragg at Slate, I think. Okay. And it's a very generous Nice interview. He talks about why he wrote his song, what he doesn't like about the other song, but he doesn't put it down or the man. He's like, I don't know him. I don't know his poem. I just, you know, hope he can learn from this and, you know, be careful with your lyrics because, you know, I didn't like this or that. And, you know, you got to be better and try not to knock, punch down, that sort of thing. But it was a very generous, nice uh, uh, interview. And I think Oliver Anthony would appreciate it, even if he doesn't necessarily agree with Billy Bragg's very progressive uh, politics. So, you know, uh, we're, now we're not mental health professionals. We're not looking for a new job, at least not in mental health. I would, however, not mind running CNN. What about you, Sperling? Should we do it? Yeah. You know, uh, I think right now I would let somebody else do that because they seem to be in a world. No way. No, this is the time. This is when, this is when you can have a big impact when they're floundering, when they're down. You don't want to take it over when they've been number one for five years. You want to take it over when they're in crisis. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. And so, funnily enough, one of the big crisis points earlier was they were launching CNN Plus and saying, no, Zaslav took the, no, absolutely not. And now they're putting streaming CNN on Max or HBO Max, whatever you want to call it. They'll have live coverage streaming from CNN and do original programming. I think because of the carriage rules and deals they have with stations or cable companies, et cetera, they're not going to have a live feed of the channel you will see on the air air necessarily every show will not air as it airs on cnn but breaking news live coverage and their live stream of breaking news that will be on this service as well as original programming by christian amanpour and others so sounds like what they were going to do anyway doesn't it yeah i mean uh, you know i'm sure there would be people that disagree with me but i think the canning of cnn plus after just 30 days um was more of an ego thing than anything. I think yeah. Zaslav came in and was like, I told you not to do this, and now I'm going to can it. Uh, personally. I mean, how could you not want CNN as part of the package? Yeah. And how could you not want to have original programming? How could you not want a live feed of CNN? The, the dumb part of this is they said, we're going to bring in younger viewers. Like, yeah, all the kids are going to come to Max so they can live stream CNN. It's just, you know, don't try and be some, just provide the breaking news that we had from CNN back in the day. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Well, we're going to provide you breaking news. Can you do that in a podcast? Not really. I don't know. Well, well, no. We're going to provide news. Analysis. Substance and analysis and comprehensive uh, breakdowns. Uh, What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we know this much, okay? On Arrakis, which I have not personally visited, by the way, he who controls the spice controls the universe. That is very true on Arrakis. And Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, He who controls the PR messaging of the day controls, well, the universe. Right now, that would be the writers and actors who are controlling the, <laughs> the, uh, the messaging. Uh, maybe that's why the film Dune 2 is moving to 2024. The WGA and SAG-AFTRA are in strong solidarity, and the studios and streamers are hiring a PR crisis management firm. Can I ask you a question very what's, quickly? What's that? Can we just say studios? Can we refer to Netflix, Apple, and Amazon as studios? They may be vertically integrated studios, but they are all basically now releasing some films in some way in theaters. What's the difference between a studio and a streamer? They all seem, you know, Sony may not have a streaming service as such, but basically, isn't Netflix a studio? And the network yes, and the exhibitor. Although they're considered a streaming pure play, a studio would release through multiple distribution channels. 
streaming Well, now Netflix is syndicating their shows, sometimes allowing their shows to be sold elsewhere, or others are. They're certainly showing movies in theaters, and I don't think it'll be too long before they allow some older shows to be shown on cable channel or fast channels. I, I would agree with that. Um, I think so I'm I, just thinking studios and streamers is such a mouthful. I don't know. It is. And yet, you know, it's almost like the, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, yeah. But here's the thing. We also know something else. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is that Barbie and Gran Turismo are going out on a date. Oh, wait, no, they're, they're battling <laughs> over who won the weekend at the North American box office. Pink, pink, pink. Listen, yeah. don't worry. We've got this one, which I'm sure mm-hmm. is a reference to Barbie, even though I can't recall the exact line of dialogue. No, no. No? Oh, no. okay. Uh, some new details about the controversy over the family behind the Blindside movie emerged, and they're kind of interesting, actually. Uh, and there's a lawsuit taking place uh, about that, which we discussed on last week's episode. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at residuals. Not that Michael and I get any. Uh, the success <laughs> of Suits and streaming has shown... A spotlight on how much money writers make on a cable or broadcast hit versus a streaming hit. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, actually. And thanks to the creators of Suits, we've got the numbers to explain it all for you. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz, who's going to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world for the entire week ending August 27th. And the number one movie around the world, not counting Korea, because we know nothing about Korea. Korea is a black box. The number one movie... Wait, wait. I'm getting in some notes. No, we don't care what the number one movie is around the world for this week. All anybody cares about is what's the number one movie of the weekend in North America. That's all anybody cares about. That's the battle between Gran Turismo and Barbie. It's it's Grand Barbie or Barbie Rismo. Right, Grand Barbieismo. Barbieismo, <laughs> yeah. So this is pulls together stuff we've been talking about all the time. We always cover the entire week's box office. But most of the time, people are comparing new movies that opened up on a Thursday with other movies who've already been open, but they only count the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday grosses for that movie. So in the last few years, they would say, okay, Gran Turismo opened up on Thursday. We'll count its Thursday grosses, but we'll ignore the Thursday grosses of Barbie and just count Barbie's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday grosses. It drives us nuts, right? Well, especially so that when three you're day doing, versus four day, you know, I'm you, sorry. When you're doing opening weekend comps, that's, that's the problem is when you say like, and I'm just going to start picking dates randomly here. When you say, oh, back in 2005, yeah. XYZ opened up to, to $40 million. But really, that was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday gross. And then you get to like the 2010s where it was like Thursday at 10 p.m. You had one extra show, one extra show. Mm -hmm. And then that would be thrown in. Now you've got the extra shows going all the way to like 2 p.m. So you got like two or three extra shows on a third. It's just obliterated comps. You can't do anything. Well, And it doesn't need to. We have records like the most money made on a Tuesday, the most money made on a Thursday or a Saturday or a Sunday. Every day of the week has a record for the most money made in that one single particular kind of day. We also have three-day weekend records. And if they would just tidy up the record books and the the grosses, we would also have four-day records. It's okay. Just don't compare a four-day record to a three-day record. But all right, let's talk about Barbie and Gran Turismo. Who won the weekend? Well, controversially, we will say Barbie because it made more money over the weekend. 
That, of course, is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But like we say, movies that just opened also get to include their Thursday grosses. So now, if you include Thursday grosses, but what if we include Barbie's Thursday grosses as well? Because if you're going to include Gran Turismo, why not? If you include the Thursday gross for both movies, then the winner is Barbie. Warner Brothers gets bragging rights again. So now, what if we do what everyone else has done for the last few years, which is to just include the Thursday grosses for the new movie and only the Friday, Saturday, Sunday grosses for the other movie? movie Barbie. Well, in that case, of course, the winner is, in fact, Barbie. Barbie made more money Friday, Saturday, and Sunday compared to Gran Turismo over Thursday over Sunday. Why? Because Gran Turismo is including sneak previews from a week ago and two weeks ago. $3.9 million from the previous two weekends. That's absurd. Yeah. And now if you look at the actual... I how they were going to account for that because sometimes... If you're doing a sneak preview, what they do is they say, well, we took, I'm just going to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles out and we played that for one showing. We're going to give that gross to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is why some studios sometimes say, yeah, 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 take my, take my film off, <laughs> put the new, hot, yeah, yeah. Hot new film in. Well, obviously that doesn't happen as much anymore uh, because everybody, you know, for, for, for legal reasons. But right. I did, I wondered how they were going to account for this. And they accounted well, for people it. have been getting away with this for a few years now. It's ridiculous. Well, this now it's if a you lot look worse. at the it's gotten if way, you look I at mean, the official record, if you look at the official record online at box office mojo or the numbers, and this is how it's going to appear for years now, unless we stop doing this nonsense, this ridiculous Hollywood accounting. This says that Gran Turismo grossed eight million dollars on Friday. Well, it didn't open on Friday. It opened on Thursday, and it didn't gross $8 million on Thursday and Friday. It grossed $1.4 million on Thursday and $3.3 million on Friday. That's what it grossed. But the record books show $8 million because they're taking 3.3 and 1.4 and adding the 3 point whatever from the previous two sneak previews. It's absurd. But Barbie won the day on Thursday. It made more money on Friday. It made more money on Saturday. It made more money on Sunday. On what planet is Gran Turismo the winner of the weekend when Barbie made more money Friday through Sunday than Gran Turismo even on Thursday through Sunday. Hey, look, it's it was so absurd. it was so confusing that that Comscore sent out adjusted actuals. Like they said, here are the actual figures on Monday, which they always do. By the way, they always yeah. send out the actuals on Monday, and then they said, "I so Oops. wanted to be on CNBC this week. I so wanted to be the expert they called in to say this is why you know this Hollywood accounting, another example, and this is why we should talk about the number one movie of the week, not the weekend." Everybody should go to seven-day grosses. If you open on Thursday or Tuesday or Wednesday, we don't care. If you're talking about the records, show what you made in those days, not what you pretend you made on Friday. Well, you, you know, know, the funny thing is uh, when the global grosses came in, you know what happened was uh, what? we got, what? Uh, well, we, we got Oppenheimer was for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That was the... Uh, <laughs> the number one movie in the world for just well not according to us because we look at the total week grosses when you look at the worldwide box office for the week ending august 27th the number one movie around the world is not barbie it's not oppenheimer it's not gran turismo it is the chinese crime drama no more bets that movie made another 77 million dollars this week and it's at 469 million dollars and counting at number two around the world is barbie with 61 million dollars and it's going to be available to buy on September 5th. Boy, is that dumb. At number three is Oppenheimer with another $59 million. That's at $777 million worldwide. Wow. It still has China to come among, I think, Japan as well, possibly. It'd be fascinating to see how it does in Japan. 
And is it possible it could get to $100 million? This puppy could play in IMAX for months to Wait, come. Wait, you mean a billion dollars if you're talking about A billion dollars. Yeah, a million dollars. I sound like Austin Powers or Mr. One. Dr. Evil or whatever his name was. <laughs> I want $1 million. <clears throat> uh, Blue Beetle made another $39 million. That's at $82 million worldwide. Not doing great. Gran Turismo, based on a true story, made $37 million this week. It's at $54 million worldwide. That total, and even actually that week, includes the two weeks of North American previews. Uh, Meg 2, The Trench, made another $36 million. That's at $350 million. That's going to hit $400 million and triple its budget. So that's a winner. And then we, you know, we're talking about Barbie. We're talking about Oppenheimer. But I have to say, you know what? Really, when you look at the world and cinema, it's really Huang Boa's world. And we just live in it. Huang Boa is the Chinese comedian, and he currently appears in three movies playing in theaters. He produced and stars in Papa, the movie we're just about to talk about. That's the story of parents trying to improve their son's education. I think it's a comedy. He also appears in Creation of the Gods and the breakdancing film One and Only, which just dropped off our charts, but I assume it's still playing in theaters around the world. So that's pretty great. Papa, by the way, made $35 million this week. It's at $60 million and counting. Creation of the Gods made another $12 million, and uh, the one and only one and only just dropped off the charts. But those are the three big hits in China right now, and he's in two of them. I mean, he's in three of them, but one of them's off the charts. You mentioned Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That made another $17 million. That's at $135 million worldwide. Now we go to India. Ghadar 2, set in 1971 during uh, India's war with Pakistan, that action film made $14 million this week. It's at $74 million in counting. So we've got China, we've got North American movies, we've got movies starring a, a, a Latin star for the first time in a DC uh, comic book movie. That's very cool. We've got the Chinese drama. We've got uh, a, a Hindi film from India. We've got uh, where we got a uh, we've got films from Korea. We've got Tamil. We've got uh, all sorts of films from all over the world. Hindi, Tamil, Telugu. This really is a worldwide box office, and it's great to see. The more movies do better around the world, the more more better all the studios do and all the all the all the movie going companies around the world it's really healthy to see these movies and you can see them in north america you know these aren't just movies we hear about in china or india a lot of them are playing right now in north america and that's cool to see well and uh what did you see any movies over the weekend i mean a, a teenage first of all blue beetle everybody i know who's seen it said actually it's a good movie uh it's, yeah it's, it's i was i thought the I'm sorry. They say the same thing about uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, I was thinking the whole would be better for Blue Beetle because I was hearing about good word of mouth as well, but it didn't happen. It was a pretty solid fall, so that's too bad. It, it fell pretty strongly. But, you know, we talked about Barbie versus Gran Turismo. Barbie made $7 million on Sunday. Gran Turismo made more money on Sunday than it did on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, or those two weeks of previews. It made $4.4 .4 million on Sunday. So, Wow. National Cinema Day. What are you hearing from the exhibitors? It sounds like it was a big success. Yeah, I mean, certainly, look, not everybody took part. Not every exhibitor took part. There are some people that say, look, I do dine-in cinema. I sell out every day. I don't need to do mm -hmm. a National Cinema Day. I appreciate it. I appreciate what they're doing. But for me, I lose money if I do that. And they sell out every day because they have 40 seats. Oh, that is not true. They have 65. 
All right. I'm just saying, you know, that <laughs> yeah, we're just no. pointing out they, that's yes. cool. That's great. They got a business model that works. I'm not mocking it. I'm just saying they're selling out, not because they offer food, because they have very few seats available. So Correct. that's cool. Yes. That's great. Uh, All right. But they drew 8.5 million admissions on Sunday. Shockingly, that's more than they did last year, despite not being on a holiday weekend when you think people would be more likely to go to the movies and moving it from a Saturday, which is a bigger movie going day, to a Sunday. So they drew people to Sunday on a non holiday weekend weekend. The only difference here is that unlike last year, there were new releases like Gran Turismo. So that helped draw people in. Right. And a lot of people were going to two movies. Uh, that was like the big thing. You know, now that oh. Barbenheimer happened, uh, it's all about like, how many movies can you see in a day for four dollars? Yeah. So it's. Uh, so is this going to happen next year? Oh, I would imagine it will. Now, oh, that's cool. I think they will probably because the studios are, are kind of edgy about letting people know when it's going to happen because in other countries it'll still be a secret yeah it'll be a secret and then it'll happen like probably the same weekend (laughs) i guess it worked you know i I was dissing that but i guess if they see in other countries that are really you know depresses box office for two weeks prior it makes sense to do it i guess they got the word out so good credit to them they're getting the word out letting people know and making it work so that's cool yeah now now what happened also is that uh Mm -hmm. and this is kind of more in I know we're not in inside baseball yet. We'll get Ooh. there. But uh, the person uh, in charge of putting that whole thing together was Jackie Brenneman, who is uh, leaving the National Association of Theater Owners and the Cinema Foundation. It was announced the day that National Cinema Day was announced. And it wasn't announced. Somebody found out about it because, you know, there's a new national, there's a new head of the National Association of Theater Owners, much like at Warner Brothers, where there was a bake-off to find out which head would you know which executive would be the head then uh, you know once they named one of the three people the the chairman of warner brothers the other two eventually either got fired or left and that's exactly what's happening at the national association of theater owners to everyone's dismay Mm, that's too bad well i know next year when they have national cinema day maybe you'll be able to go see dune part two because it's moving from this year to 2024 because of the ongoing strikes we had good news last week the writers guild and the amptp uh the producers the studios and streamers they were meeting and we're like huzzah and they met and 20 minutes after it ended the amptp said aha We've got a plan. We're going to release what we were offering to them and let everybody see how wonderful we are and how much progress we've made and how we're making such a good offer. And everybody's going to get angry at the writers and go, come on, they're making serious offers here. Why aren't you moving and getting this done? Well, that blew up in their face, didn't it? Yeah, well, and it wasn't just that the AMPTP met. Uh, they brought everybody. They brought Bob Iger. They brought uh, Donna Langley. I mean, they brought all of the heads of the studios to this meeting. And then they said, here is our counter proposal. As you'll see, it addresses minimums. As you see, it, ad- it addressed all of these things. Didn't address AI so much. Um, and, or writer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what, they, what wound up happening, actually, is they all agreed, okay, we're going to keep this between us. All right, everybody, just, uh, you know, we're not going to make this. I don't know that they made that agreement again, but it traditionally, you would not if you're negotiating you don't share the details to the world last time it leaked out from the producers and the writers were like fine they're leaking stuff we'll tell you what they offered us this time the studios and streamers said well we'll get ahead of the curve we'll release it 
officially 20 minutes after the meeting's over and the writers are like yeah so the big heads come to us and go like come on now take this deal we're being helpful here you know this is the best you'll get and they're chiding us and then they're releasing the info to the world uh to try and pressure us instead of making actual progress or actually negotiating they're just trying to pressure us via the media into signing a deal well it didn't work what they're really trying to do is get uh divide and conquer they're trying to get one faction of writers to go, no, we must continue. And another faction of writers going, you know what? That's actually right. pretty good. Let's let's take the deal. That's right. They wanted to yeah. sow discord and it didn't work. Didn't work. The writers and the actors said no. And in fact, it blew up in their face so bad, they hired a crisis management PR firm. It's probably the smartest thing they've done so far. But the problem here is they think the problem is the messaging. Nope. Oh, if we could just get the word out, it's our messaging needs to be better. It's like, no, your offers need to be better. <laughs> no, here's what I would say to them. You changed the business. Okay. Right. However, you're trying to offer the people, the workers, whether it's the writers or, or, or other, other uh, employees, actors, actors, yeah. doesn't matter. You're trying to offer them a deal that applies to the old business model. You change, you yourselves change that. So if you want to change one thing, other things will change with it. Right. They didn't ask you to blow all your money on streaming. They didn't ask you to, you know, yank shows off broadcast and cable and put them on a streaming channel with no ads. They didn't ask you to do all that. You did it. They didn't ask you to shorten seasons and give 10 episodes and then wait two years to renew a show and leave people dangling. The studios and streamers did that, not the writers and not the actors. Everything has really fundamentally changed. And so the contracts need to fundamentally change as well. For example, the studios felt like they gave room on the writer's room idea. They said, well, you know, a showrunner could hire two people for a minimum of 20 weeks. The showrunner could also hire two writers during production, which would be good because you want writers to have experience on the set. But the problem, as the writers point out, is we don't want to just leave it up to the vagaries of a showrunner who might feel pressure not to do it. And also, there is no detail in the minimum basic agreement, the MBA, that defines who is the showrunner. The studios could suddenly say the director is the showrunner. It could be a producer is the showrunner. It doesn't have to be the creator of the show or the, the person that is normally the showrunner. And so they're like, yeah, that's not working for us. We want a minimum of five writers with even more for longer seasons. The studios offered some transparency on viewership. They said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll give you a quarterly report that lists the total hours viewed for each made-for-streaming show. And we'll tell and you which like, ones it was. And you, won't, and you won't be able to tell anybody what you see. And my first thought was like, you're not going to show each episode's breakdown so writers can see if a show's getting more popular or less popular? You're just going to give a total number? Is it going to be broken down by season? They're like, no, the writers write, we want residuals to be greater when the shows are hits, just like they've always been. We've always benefited when a show was a hit, and that transparency doesn't even begin to cover it. Well, uh, and you mentioned the, the movies, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned Dune yeah. 2 moving. I can, yeah. I can fill in some blanks if you want here and that is dune 2 maybe isn't even done yet okay it's probably still in post Ooh, you think well and you think the visual effects are still being slapped together no it's not visual effects you know you still have uh, audio to be recorded some you know well all the effects all the effects yeah um you know whether yeah well even if it was done let's just assume it's done it's on i assume it's done because uh, they've had a long time for that. Yeah, you'd be shocked, you know, how things get done at the last minute. But first of all, this strike may be nearing its conclusion. 
at the end of uh, November when this, or you know, at the end of October when this is is uh, supposed to be opening. You have no time to do publicity, and what you already have is other studios, and this is a Warner Brothers film, beginning to stake out claims to 2024. So by moving Dune now, they've staked out March 15th, which means Snow White will probably have to move, which means Deadpool 3, which is, there's no way that's opening in that Memorial Day you know, ah. slot. So you know, basically you see a whole bunch of studios going, all right, we've lost 2024. So I'm sorry, we've lost the back half of 2023. Let's start planning for 2024 because we have well, to have something. We can't, we can't have nothing. Let's, let's, I wouldn't be shocked if you start hearing the color purple moving. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. They, 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 at, when this was announced, they made a point of saying, well, uh, this isn't moving. That's moving. The other movie's not moving. I'm like, well, just give it time. Yeah, this right. is just the first movie to move. Correct. However, we, do, we just got some news that Apple is planning a wide global theatrical release for the Scorsese film Killers of the Flower Moon on October 20th. So they are going to go wide instead of a limited release. We don't know what wide means globally or what they're actually intending. We don't have numbers. We know it'll be released in on IMAX screens, of course, and it will get a wide global release on October 20th. How long it will be? Will there be any 30-day window or anything like that? We don't know, but we do know that that movie, at least, is still sticking to the fall. They've probably gotten in all the PR they need to with Khan. They, you could meet with every journalist around Around the world, people could bank stuff and get it out there. Unbelievable. I think I, I don't know I how you going, I don't know how you release that movie without Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro making the rounds. It's well, they could have already done. Yeah, but, they, they could have already. They've already booked it. They did ton. They met with the world's press. Yeah, but there's how still, often do you need to talk to them and interview? You need to interview them twice. If you spoke to them at Con, you can do a story in October. You don't need to speak to them twice. Uh, but if you're Jimmy Fallon and you have the Tonight Show and, you know, that's the kind of stuff you need right before a movie. You need that kind of. Well, I would argue that's true more for Fla Killers of the Flower Moon than Dune 2. I feel like Dune was already uh, promoted. You've already I'm got only, the movie. I'm only talking about yeah. Killers of the Flower right. Moon. Yeah. And similar art house fair where you really need that push. Yeah. Something like Aquaman. No. Yeah. Okay. It's nice to have Jason Momoa do the rounds, but who cares? I mean, I don't think it's as important, but nobody wants to be the person who releases the movie. And then when it doesn't do great, everybody's second guessing. Oh, you should have waited. You know, it's easier to say, let's just wait. You know, but we're going to have a bare cupboard come the fall. But, but uh, here's but the question that I have. Okay. So you moved mm -hmm. Dune 2. Dune 2, right? That could have been the, hey, you made this wonderful epic two-part epic uh we're right. going to give you the academy award for best picture for that we didn't give it to you for dune but we'll give it to you for dune part two because that'll cover both that's how it works yeah um and so and everybody thought oh you know finally nolan's chance to win a best director oscar for oppenheimer and a best picture for oppenheimer now it's actually i think the chances just went up well the chances just went up for dune as well oppenheimer's a far more likely oscar winner than a sci-fi movie you know, True. I mean, I know Lord of the Rings did it with fantasy, but that's a rare, 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 you know, that's like the only time ever, right? Yeah. Well, I think mean, about so, it. That was like a, you know, a 10 year epic yeah. production, right? Yeah. And, and was far more acclaimed and, and commercially successful than Dune, which was released under straightened circumstances, of course, and was well-reviewed, but not to the ecstatic level that The Lord of the Rings was, I would argue. Well, the studios made other offers under AI, where they sort of moved a little bit. That was pretty good. Uh, second step... They made, a, they made a movement there. The writers just want to cover more writers to be eligible for a getting paid for a revision. Because right now, writers really feel like for decades, they've been forced to do free work. 
That means for decades, when they turn in a script, they're asked to do revision after revision after revision before officially turning in their first draft. It's been a pernicious measure that's gotten worse and worse and worse. And now almost half of all script deals are one step, meaning there's no guaranteed payment for any revisions, which are, of course, inevitable. So they're saying, look, it's becoming almost everybody is being forced to do, you know, five, 10 revisions without getting paid. We want a bigger guarantee of a second step to get paid for a revision when you accept a writer's script. And the studios say, okay, we'll cover everyone who makes less than 200% of guild minimum. The writers want 250% of guild minimum. So that feels like a workable level. But on so many other areas like minimums where studios didn't budge and residuals where studios didn't budge, uh, there's still a huge gap between what the writers are calling for and what the studios are willing to do. So anybody thinking this is going to wind up by October, November, I wish, I hope so. But, you know, the unions are standing strong and the unions are just getting stronger. Movie theater employees, the staff at the Alamo Drafthouse in Brooklyn, want to unionize with the UAW. They've made moves towards doing that. And we've talked about visual effects workers at Marvel. They're unionizing for the first time. And now the visual effects workers at Walt Disney are also looking to unionize. A supermajority voted to do it, and they filed with the National Labor Relations Board. You're seeing this in every area of the country, teachers to uh, you name it. Uh, people are real Starbucks employees realizing that the only way you can have any say or sway when arguing with management is if you're a member of a union. Yeah, well, that's uh, the, the whole Alamo Drafthouse thing that they, they did it in San Francisco. And so it's, it's happening uh, uh, location by location. I think if they really want to have any, any sway here, they're going to have to kind of create their own union or, you know, figure something well, aren't they out. partnering with a bigger union yeah or or aren't partner they? with a bigger union but all of them will, should partner with the same union so that they can then be represented is that not happening i yet? have no idea i have to research it further it's not new and, i mean they, they is it tricky earlier. is it tricky for alamo draft house like they don't want to bitterly oppose a union because that's kind of against the the image of the company and the kind of customers they want to attract who go to art house movies isn't it right correct and but they're also kind of like hey uh you know, we can't run a union shop here. We, you know, the, the, the margins. You are can't so, pay your employees a decent wage. Uh, it, it's, they're already being paid well over minimum. Unions are not the enemy. Uh, every company says, we treat you so well. Why can't you trust us? Whether it's Disney or Alamo Drafthouse or Starbucks, every company thinks unions are the devil and they're not. Employees simply have no power if they don't unionize, and you will not be treated fairly if you're not unionized. And you can say out of the magnanimity of your heart, oh, we do great by you. It's like, no. Look where Alamo draft houses are placed in major cities with huge cost of living expenses. If you've got employees there, they're just looking for a livable wage. So, you know, they're not the enemy, but undoubtedly management will treat them as such. Well, yeah, I have no idea uh, how Alamo is, is dealing with this, although that is a story. I should, I should uh, write that. Yeah, it's kind of your world there, baby. You're, you, got, you got Celluloid Junkie there. How can people subscribe to Celluloid Junkie? Well, if they go to uh, celluloidjunkie.com slash newsletters, I think that's it, or is it newsletter? I, I, always, I always make the mistake of not knowing. Uh, it's newsletter, <laughs> not letters. Uh, there is uh, on the right hand, right sidebar there, there is, uh, it says get the newsletter, and you can get, get our newsletter and. Uh, I can tell you that we will not spam you because uh, we can barely get one one email out per week. 
Well, um, I got blindsided by the controversy around the family and the NFL player, Michael Ower, uh, who were portrayed in the movie The Blind Side. At the time, all I wanted to say was, yeah, it, you know, it, it's weird that the conservatorship is still in place for this young man. I mean, this, this adult man in his 30s who's an NFL Super Bowl champion, just like it was weird for Britney Spears. We've learned a little bit about conservatorships. And on the other hand, his lawyer saying, bitching about net points, that the family has net points and thinking that might be a source of tons of money, that shows an ignorance of Hollywood and how it works. That's all we wanted to say, but we got a little distracted. But now more info has come out, and I shouldn't say it's interesting. I should just say it's kind of weird. The details are a little weird. First of all, the producers came out with a statement that people who helped make The Blind Side happen, and they rightly say, look, we made this movie. Nobody thought this was a big commercial prospect. We made it happen. It's got a positive message. Don't yell at us about white saviors and don't yell at us for making this movie. We rolled the dice and we made it happen. Leave the movie alone. It's, we're so proud of it. So fair enough. But addressing net profits, they said, quote, that the film rights did not include significant payouts in the event of the film's success, end quote. So they're not saying nobody got net points. They're just saying that, you know, it wasn't significant. That's weird, though. We just assumed you're selling your rights. You're a nobody family and, a, and a, a, um, an NFL player, but not a superstar. You're not going to get net points on the movie. And even Michael Lewis at the time would not get net points on the movie because this was the first one of his books turned into a film. This was before the big short. This was before Moneyball. So he would not have had the sway to demand you know, gross participation. And if he got net points, it would be unlikely, but they would just be vanity, of course. So that's all we wanted to say about it. But then Michael Lewis spoke up and he said, I got about $280,000 from the movie rights and the movie success over the years. And the family got an equal 280000 That includes Michael, Michael Ower, the NFL football player. He says it was an even split between him and the family. We're like, okay. But then the producers in their statement said, actually, we paid the family $767,000 to their agent. That Which is represents what would happen, them, by the way. Including Michael. It, well, it of course, be, I don't yeah, know why they yeah. bothered saying it went to their agent. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they said that. But 767000 is almost half a million dollars more than what Michael Lewis said they got. He's a smart man. He's a reporter or certainly, a, you know, deals in nonfiction and journalism. That's a weirdly off number for him to have. I can't imagine he was telling us what they got after taxes and after Nate. It's like, no, that's not how it works. You got a million dollars. You got a million dollars. Of course, you have to pay taxes. Of course, you have a manager or an agent or whatever. So that was weird. That's a huge difference in what they're saying. Even weirder, the, the producers, Alcon, say they made a donation to the Tui family donation to the Tui family foundation called making it happen, which is about helping other kids not fall through the cracks. They also say that Michael Ower refused to have them make an equal donation to any charity of his choice. That's weird. Almost as a, as a matter of course, when you're a successful college uh, football player or an NFL football player, you're going to have some foundation uh, that you either work with or created. That's weird that he would refuse that. Even weirder, the family says that Michael Ower refused to accept uh, some of the money he was owed, so they put it in a trust or an account for him. So that's all very strange and very unusual. Well, it's also very trackable. Uh, I mean, you you can't say, oh, we started a trust and then not. Well, have I'm any. sure they did, yeah. but why was he refusing? I'm suggesting there was bad blood long ago. So it's not just about whatever lawyer he has right now. Um, so that's weird. It's also still weird that the conservatorship is still in effect. 
It's also not true that they couldn't adopt him. They could have adopted him. It was a very simple procedure in the state at the time, but there were reasons they didn't want to adopt him because he would have been then part of the family and technically possibly eligible for more support from them. Uh, you know, who knows why they didn't do it. But look, they were rich. He's become rich. It's all bad blood and it's a sad and it's a shame to do. But one final detail from the New York Times, the family foundation that they founded, which I believe the mom uh, was running and got paid for, uh, but I can't swear to that, uh, not a very good charitable organization. Only 20% of the money that came in actually went to charitable work. 80% of it was going to overhead, meaning the salaries for the people running it, the infrastructure, that's a sign of a charity you really don't want to donate to. Uh, that's just per the New York Times, but that's very sketchy. Now, remember, the family at one point owed more than 100 Taco Bells and KFCs. They owned, you mean. Owned them. Yes. And yes. they've sold them off, but they are rich. So they, they certainly didn't say, we want to take this young man in so we can rip them off. You know, that's, that's not what's going on here. Uh, but after the movie... She, you know, and her husband published a New York Times bestselling book. She got as a gig as a designer on ABC's Extreme Makeover. She became a highly paid motivational speaker and saw their life glorified in an Oscar-winning film. Uh, she has also referred into one of her books to Michael as her adopted son. And her old website, which I found on the Wayback Machine, says at the top, Blindside Adoption T-shirts now available. Not Blindside conservatorship t-shirts now available blindside adoption t-shirts now available so it's all ugly and it's sad but you can understand and and it there's a column that is in the new york times i believe we've linked to that talks about adoption and the the dynamic that can be there how as an adoptee and you're always supposed to feel grateful to the people who took you in uh one thing that seemed to really bother michael or was that the mom was quoted as saying, if it wasn't for us, he'd be on the streets or dead. And he's like, well, you know, no, <laughs> I was working really hard before I met them. Other people gave me a leg up and, you know, there was already a man who helped him get him to the private prep school that he was in. Uh, NFL scouts saw him and, and recognized his potential long before the Tuies were involved. So there've been other people who have recognized his talent and the ability to, and he worked very hard to get where he is today. So uh, being painted as a semi-literate gentle giant who doesn't understand football, that's the movie, and that seems to be what irked him the most. Maybe he just got a bad lawyer who's convincing him, ah, they ripped you off. I don't know, but it's a, it's a shame. But the weird details that have come out are certainly confusing. Well, if that's a weird deal, I wonder what you think of some of the deals in our Big Deal or Big Whoop segment. Ooh. Yeah, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment, and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, Disney. Actually, no, okay, it's not just Disney. Uh, Well, Disney is trying to balance the books, and we all know that, and they're trying to lure back some fans in India all at once. That's what they're, you know, it's not easy. First, Disney is the latest studio canceling a show which happens all the time, but nowadays it seems to happen so a studio can get a tax write-off instead of, uh, instead of actually because it's a bad show, uh, or rather than because, yeah, because the show was a flop. Now HBO's The Idol was definitely a flop. Its first season aired <laughs> to brutal reviews and audience members that were, or audience numbers, I should say, that were rather disappointing, and now it's gone. That's, that's the normal way to do it. But Warner Brothers disappeared a Batgirl movie to save bucks before it even aired. And now Disney is dumping the pricey TV series Nautilus before it even airs. Uh, this, this Jules Verne prequel was just too tempting a tax write-off, apparently. Of course, studios might be 
you know, pound wise and dollar foolish, you could make a make a a theme park ride out of one of those Nautilus things. Uh, in India, Disney <laughs> was outbid on certain rights to cricket, and it imagined Indian v- viewers were eager to upgrade from a free service to a premium one all at the same time. Probably not true. Uh, people fled Disney Plus Hotstar, so now the company is taking a page out of a, the playbook of a competitor and offering cricket for free on smartphones and tablets. Apparently, eyeballs are really valuable when they're watching your content. Big deal or big whoop? Well, there's a lot going on here, and you've linked to an important story about ESPN. Tell us about that. Well, so, you know, uh, Bob Iger has realized a couple things when it comes to sports. ESPN uh, is... Very valuable. Very valuable. (laughs) They don't want to give it up. They don't want to sell it because it actually is profitable. However, all these leagues are like, you owe us $20 trillion billion for the next NFL season. And they're like, um, that, that's really expensive. So Paul, before you tell me the next detail, I want people to know that I am taking a sip of water while you talk. What are they considering to uh, charge for this service? Oh, oh, um, $35 a month. <laughs> what? Yes. Spit take. Yeah. I was like, why is he, oh my God. I had no idea where you were going with that. I was like, why is he telling people that like he's taking like what? $35 a month. Oh my God. Wow. Can I uncut the cord? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh my God. Get me the scotch tape. <laughs> <Some tweezers. laughs> well, that's what happens when all of a sudden, you know, look, when we're all paying for ESPN, it's $3 a month. And yes, you might watch it once every three months, but it's $3 a month. When, or not at all. Or, yeah. When when just you are paying for it, yeah, it's $35 oh a month. God. Oh, my Especially God. when all of these sports rights cost billions of dollars. And so, they're not going down. So, of course, Iger's like, okay, way back during the Sun Valley Conference, he's like, well, maybe we need a strategic partner to come in and help us. And like, maybe that strategic partner is Comcast. Help us. And then Amazon said, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, can we can we have a conversation? Because and how does that strike you? So it's not a zero sum game here. If Disney is not worried about Amazon getting stronger by offering ESPN in its service or bundled somehow, is that the idea that you could get it as part of Amazon Prime or as something. well as or they, uh, Disney Plus? They'd be a part of it in some way. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know how they're basically Disney owning ESPN. They're looking for somebody to come in and help kind of foot the bill for yeah. for declining uh, subscriber numbers because that's what you're talking about. The carriage fee is dropping. So they need somebody to come in and take the other maybe 29% of, they don't want to give up control of it. So they still want to own 51%. Hearst owns 20%. So they got about between 29 and 30% to kind of give away here. Uh, and, you know, a nice little cash infusion of $10 billion would be nice. They could pay off some debt from purchasing 20th Century Fox. Uh, and that's basically what we're talking about here is, gee, we've got a heavy debt load. We've got declining revenue on the ESPN side. We've got uh, you know sports rights that are going to increasingly go up. So that's why they're also talking to sports leagues saying, hey, do you want in on the ESPN? Do you want to own some of, the, uh, some of the network? We could work that deal out too. Because the sports leagues are saying, hey, do you know we charged you like $8 billion for Monday Night Football for the next 10 years? Yeah, we're not going to reduce that. Even though fewer people will be watching, we're not going to reduce that. So maybe we can work something else out. Well, the something else is maybe we take a cut and do some rev share here. That's basically what you've got going on with all, whether it's ESPN or 
Disney Plus Hotstar. You, you're, like I said previously, the model is changing. It's very disruptive. And that's where we're at with, with, uh, with all the streaming plus linear television issues. Well, that's a lot going on here, but you can see they want to reach eyeballs and the price is getting bigger and they're losing money from cord cutting. So uh, uh, in desperation, they're canceling shows and movies before they even air or play in theaters. Uh, That just seems really short term thinking, doesn't it? Well, again, like I said, you could have maybe Nautilus was going to be a huge hit and you would have had a whole Nautilus world over at uh, Disney World or Disneyland. So you, you don't know. About- Are you joking? Are you joking? Yeah, because that's my, my, one of my favorite memories of Disney World. The first time I went to Walt Disney World, I went with my dad and my sister Libet. Libet was in a national or state level spelling bee competition. And we were, that was taking place in Orlando. So, of course, we went to Disney World. And we, we went on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Jules Verne based on, you know, the Nautilus and all that. And you get into your Nautilus and you, it's on a track and you go underwater. And it takes like... I don't know why, um, but it, the line was out the door. Yeah, and then you look through the little portholes as you're, as you're kind of uh, going underwater. You're, you're underwater from the start. You're never like, you don't really go underwater. But, but it's, you go like 10 feet under the water, and you're looking at cheesy little plastic things, you know, like, oh, there's an octopus. It's just very, everybody's waiting to go on it, and it's an incredibly dull ride. And we're sitting in the Nautilus, and we're looking out the window underwater, and, you know, and we turn a little creaky corner, as it says on its track, and everybody's sort of quiet. And there's this recorded tape that's playing, telling you, oh, what's happening? And Captain, what's going on here? That sort of thing. And it's a quiet moment. My dad says, just as, you know, peeking around the corner, you can see there's, you know, little creatures and my dad goes look it's the lost city of atlantis right and two seconds later the audio tape says look captain it's the lost city of atlantis <laughs> and everybody burst out laughing in the car you know it was like yep yeah yeah, yeah. that was the highlight of the ride <laughs> so <laughs> was it your dad hey it, your dad created the highlight of, the, of a walt disney world ride you should actually feel he could be an imagineer you don't know i mean maybe he he missed his calling and that's that's true. But uh, you know what? Maybe Eminem missed his calling because it's com- uh, political campaign season. And that means it's time for every musical artist to play whack-a-mole. Because inevitably, some politician they did not endorse plays their song at a rally. The artist publicly distances themselves from said politician and demands that the candidate never play their song at a rally again. Uh, most politicians then go, oh, okay, and they move on and find another song and then get whacked again by that particular artist or if they're donald j trump they ignore it and keep playing the song anyway that's kind of what he does (laughs) today it's eminem versus vivek ramaswamy the rapper eminem who famously dissed trump with a brutal takedown in song was not pleased with you know that vivek performs a party trick of singing the oscar winning song lose yourself okay that's what ramaswamy does remember this is a guy running for president He's just a dude, just a dude. He's 38 years old, okay? Uh, yeah. And basically, Eminem said, uh, listen, uh, don't do that again, said Eminem to the guy trying to become the vice president in the next Trump administration, because let's face it, that's effectively what he's running for. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? 
Well, it's a big whoop. It happens every four years. It's exhausting. Uh, I feel sorry for the Republicans, though. <laughs> they can't even play rich man north of Richmond without getting in trouble. You know, you think, well, that's safe. Surely I can play Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean. He, I don't think he'll object, maybe. But rich man north of Richmond, the guy's like, yeah, don't play that song. That's not for you. I don't like any politician. <laughs> so they're a little desperate. A so pox uh, you on know, I both do, your houses. Yeah, I do feel sorry for them. I'm like, what songs are they going to play? You know, you can only play Oki from Muskogee so many times. Now, this one. Oh, yeah, yeah. This next story. A scandal is rocking Hollywood. Or I should say a scandal that is completely made up by Vanity Fair uh, and the rap. <laughs> Uh, there is rocking Hollywood as award season approaches. So here's the thing. Vanity Fair reported everyone is reeling from an email sent out by Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter, who, by the way, Feinberg handles their awards coverage. He demanded studios give him the first look at new movies. I am pounding on a table. Ahead of his competitors or there would be hell to pay. Those with movies to plug will depend on this coverage more than ever since actors and writers are currently on strike. What to do? Uh, Then Vanity Fair shared the text of the email, uh, which is rocketing around studio boardrooms. And it's kind of immediately clear Feinberg wasn't demanding early access ahead of his competitors. He was simply asking studios not to give early access to others ahead of him. Some writers said they were wearing their critics hat you know, when they saw the stuff early, rather than their award season hat and getting the kind of sneak previews Feinberg and other awards journalists couldn't. Uh, so that's, you know, seems fair to me. Uh, his claim or repercussions, I've, what were I've, they? I've, well, I've, if I've, a studio gives Variety and others an early look at a movie, why would Feinberg go out of his way to make it a priority at The Hollywood Reporter? The story makes all of this clear, but not before leading with the scandal and a headline that repeats the lie he wanted access ahead of other media outlets. The rap, which I read a piece on the rap, that kind of went down the same rabbit hole. Uh, it's a poorly worded email, granted. But is this a big Barely. Thing? I understood it. I understood it when I read it. I was like, no, that's not what he's saying at all. I didn't, I wasn't confused. I read it and said, no, they're wrong. They're lying. Okay, well, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Is the this shame a big on deal or a big whoop? It's a big whoop, but shame on the Vanity Fair and the rap. They should retract it and say, sorry, this is all nonsense. We're telling you in our story we're wrong and that the headline is wrong, and that's not what he was demanding. The worst you could say is it wasn't wildly clear what he wrote, but I don't even agree with that. So he should say, no, 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 of course not. Like, who the heck doesn't want, wants their competitors to get ahead of them? You know, it's like, no, if you give it to them first, yeah, guess what? I'm not going to be wild about promoting your movie. That's how it works for the beginning of time. So Vanity Fair and The Wrap, that's, that, that was absurd. And what's really weird is that uh, he works for The Hollywood Reporter, which is owned by PMC, which also owns Deadline and Ver- Variety and IndieWire and Billboard. So it's kind of like, I get it. Seconds count at these festivals when oh. it's a pain in but the But it's neck. not seconds count because they knew in their story what they were saying wasn't true. They're like, no, yeah, no, no, they'll no, actually no, really. Let me finish. What I'm saying is seconds count when you get out of a screening and oh, all wow. of a sudden, you know, Variety has the, the review up 10 seconds later and you're like, oh, they obviously saw it early and we're able to. Yeah, and super annoying. And, and I've been in those rooms when all of a sudden one of those media outlets, one of those trade outlets realizes they've been scooped by all of about 10 or 15 minutes with the same story that they all got at the same press conference. And they all like, oh, we've lost thousands. I'm just like, oh my God, guys, come on. You know, a year from now, none of this will matter. 
but it matters to them. And I get it. You know, there was a, you know, the, the news that I mentioned earlier about NATO, uh, it was broken uh, by a trade publication about this particular person leaving NATO. Mm-hmm. And uh, NATO didn't exactly want it out. It was very frustrating for them because it happened the same day that the National Cinema Day was announced. Right. But, I, but then, after National Cinema Day, guess who they gave the exclusive to? That same Ooh. journalist at that same... Oh, and wow. I just thought, you know what? Don't, don't call me crying on Monday when on, on the next Monday you're giving that, that person a, an exclusive. Well, and this isn't even about something that they broke the story. Uh, this is about me seeing a story covered in like the New York Post when I'm at the New York Daily News and I see the story and two minutes later I get the press release. You know, it's like, wait a sec. So you gave them the press release in advance. Don't ask me to promote whatever you want me to promote when you're giving them the press release in advance before I even see it. You know, it wasn't even a question of, you know, seeing it appear two seconds after the press release was put out. No, the story appeared before I got the press release in my inbox. So that would always infuriate. I actually let us all be on the same level. And actually, I had to uh, contact the the PR person for NATO to say, Mm -hmm. hey, do you have a, a press release on National Cinema Day since I haven't seen one and I see over there uh, there's, it's already being discussed and the response I got was just sent we didn't have one until now now that last line was referencing like basically trying to say hey look we don't know how this person got the news ahead of it yeah. Yeah, but yeah I know how they got it everybody knows how they got it you gave it to them just don't lie about it and give it to everybody at the same time do, 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 do. breaking news this episode will break the one hour mark one hour Gosh, mark yes success we've done it again all right anyway i want to read this story because i want your reaction to it i feel like it should be a little bigger i've seen little bits and pieces but i don't know famous or should we say infamous manager scooter brown is having a very bad few weeks or not Several artists are reportedly dumping Braun as their manager. Demi Lovato, Justin Bieber, Idina Mazel, Ariana Grande, to be exact. Maybe. Definitely. Sort of. Actually. Well, okay. Actually, Braun sold his company for a cool $1 billion to the Korean folk behind BTS and other big K-pop groups. So, you know, this is what he's been segueing away from day-to-day management for a while now. So you can't leave him if he's leaving you. And they're not leaving him, some say. Everyone's just figuring out what the future will be like with or without Braun. Uh, Plus, by the way, Justin Bieber has years left on his contract, so he can't leave him right now. So, oh wait, while I'm writing this story, Idina Menzel is added to the list of people leaving Scooter Braun. Well, you just said it. There is one of them. So... Oh, did I? Oh, I added a rent up liner. Oh, yeah. Well, as I wrote it, then I put it in at the top and forgot to cut the line. One other possibility, everybody knows some bad revelations are coming out about Scooter, and they want some distance between themselves and the Braun. One thing we know for sure, Taylor Swift will not be working with him. That you can take to the bank. Uh, so what is going on here? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's kind of a big whoop, but also it's, it's basically 15 years of schadenfreude kind of coming back to uh, nobody likes Scooter Braun. I mean, he basically used his, the talent that he found, Justin Bieber. He's very good at finding talent and working with them to some extent. But he used that to kind of help promote himself, which 
the talent is the star, not the manager of the talent. So he, you know, well, tell it to the Colonel. Yeah. Well, and he wound up buying, uh, the, the masters, uh, you know, the, the, uh, well, you went on getting to the Taylor Swift thing. Yeah. yeah that's, he that's flipped a- that for $300 million, selling it to Hybe, which is this BTS group, uh, you know, the management firm that BTS, uh, you know, well, in his defense, some of his people say, Hey, by the way, when he sold his company, some of his top talent reaped bucks. Maybe not a lot of bucks compared to all the money they've generated over the years, but they say Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande got $11 million when he sold his company thanks to the stock they owned in it. But yeah, I mean, his, prep, his reputation as a jerk precedes him. Jay Balvin signed with him and then left 18 months later, and he's not alone. So when you say schadenfreude, it seems more like people are happy to generate the idea people are abandoning him, but... It's all confusing and nobody's confirmed it and we don't know why or what or how. It's like, oh, Justin Bieber's left him. Well, he's got four years on his contract. So no, he hasn't left him. So maybe the schadenfreude is people desperate to create another scandal where one doesn't exist. Perhaps, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And speaking of music, Beyonce, by the way, Taylor Swift did great without Scooter Braun. Beyonce grossed $126 million in just one month on tour. That's the most in Billboard history. I get me a microphone. Somebody get me. A, uh, what What are the lyrics to her songs? <laughs> I mean, there's got to be a, like a room for a, a you know a, a tribute act, right? I mean, come on, get me a wig. I guess I'd have you to can s- do it. say get me a wig and a fan because you know you, you know it's you're nothing without the and and a singing voice. Oh oh, get me singing Just lessons. <laughs> I don't, Move on. I don't, know who, I don't know who I'm yelling to. I'm yelling to. to like, no, it's good. You're yelling to your lackeys. I like it. It's good. Yeah, the lackey is me. I'd be the one going <laughs> answering anyway. You know what? That's all. Five late night. Five late night hosts of television are uniting to do a podcast to benefit their staff. Well, that was a good idea. Smart. I don't know how much money they'll make off of it. Or are they charging money or ads? But all five of them getting together to try and benefit their staff is like, yeah, you know, I can dip into my own pocket. But hey, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel. Seth Myers and John Oliver will roll out Spotify Strike Force Five with at least twelve episodes in the work. That, so that's interesting. I think what uh, that says to you is people in the know. I mean, let's face it; they're on the phones with their agents. They know what's going on at these with these negotiations, and they're going, "Oh, this ain't going to be over anytime soon." <laughs> or they're all bored. That too. <laughs> They've got nothing to do. Summer's over. They're all back from their summer vacations and they're like, uh, we're bored and it's not going to be over. Let's do something. So, yeah. yeah. But it is time. Well, it's time for Inside Baseball, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And if you are a writer, and we know actually lots of television writers listen to us. I know that you think I'm, I'm playing around now, but they do actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... You know, I think what's interesting to me about what we're going to discuss is it's very rare that people put numbers on the table. And now, and like you say, though, we're, we're getting in with the strike, aren't we? Yeah. Now everybody's like, oh, yeah, you made that for suits. Well, look at this. I only made four hundred and fourteen dollars on, on, you know, my Simpsons episode. Something else. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So Suits is still high on the charts. It's still drawing 3 billion minutes of viewing a week. It dipped slightly after four weeks of growing and setting one record after another. And it has set some new records in terms of total views on a a show within a certain period. Uh, But you look at the charts. Suits is on top. 
And other acquired shows, reruns basically, are doing great too. NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, SWAT are all in the overall top 10. And every week you're going to see stuff like Seinfeld and Big Bang Theory and Gilmore Girls pop in and out of the charts. And the writers are saying and the actors are saying, shouldn't the talent involved be rewarded when shows are a hit? We can see how there are big hits happening uh, when they come to streaming. And of course, there are original shows in streaming as well. They don't have any you know, syndication or broadcast network numbers to back them up with that. But when you look at the big charts this week, Amazon has three shows in the top 10 originals, Jack Ryan, Good Omens, and The Summer I Turn Pretty. Hulu has the Futurama reboot. Disney Plus has Secret Invasion, which I haven't watched yet. I'm still watching Silo. Paramount has Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And Netflix has four, Sweet Magnolias, The Lincoln Lawyer, The Witcher, and an NFL documentary called quarterback look so look, that's great to i, I just want to be paid i wrote them all i want to be paid <laughs> right but it's good that they're all creating originals they're all you know it's not just netflix anymore you can see every week you've got a good mix of all different platforms creating shows that are clicking with audiences and that's cool to see but the churn rate the churn rate for subscriptions to streaming services is 47 percent. i'm assuming that's really high yes it is it is really high. Uh, but we're talking about the success of Suits, and everyone is, because people are saying, well, there's no new product. There's a lot of reality stuff sort of on the air right now, but no new shows are coming out. Not quite true, because we're seeing stuff in streaming. But nonetheless, there's an emptiness there, and people are saying, what can I watch? And they're all turning to Suits. And of course, Netflix really promoted it. But, and of but, course, Netflix has a deal with Meghan Markle, and that's part of the reason why the show has become such a big hit. But everyone wants to talk about it, and The Hollywood Reporter spoke to the show's creator. Well, who, who is it the creator or is it? Yeah, Aaron Korsh. Okay. He's the creator. All right. Well, and he said for him that a, an episode of Suits is worth $70,000 in residuals. Now, I just want to point something out. He's talking about one single episode. Okay. So it's, it's at least worth $70,000 in residuals. But here's the thing. Uh, and that's over his lifetime. And that doesn't include what he was paid when he wrote it. Bingo. What you just said. Yeah. So he's paid like, you know, he's on staff. So he's getting paid there. Uh, and, and by the way, when you're paid to write the episode, they go, yeah, you're only being paid $40,000 now, but we know that for that episode, you'll make uh, roughly X. Right. And there are 134 episodes of Suits. And he says just one episode has, has grossed him over the lifetime of the show, over the last 12 years, 13 years, $70,000 in residuals and counting. That's a show on USA. That's not even like ER. Right. That's a, a very big success story for USA Network. They had a string of shows that were sort of positive shows, blue skies shows, they called them, where they were easy to watch. He says, no, you know, the show was heavily serialized after the first season. And nonetheless, people felt like they could dip in and out. He says only people who don't watch the show say that. But, uh, you know, it is the sense that it's not a wildly demanding show that you can sort of track what's going on and get the general gist of it. But uh, nonetheless, it was an optimistic show, a positive show, and it's made a lot of money over the years. He says, I made $70,000 so far from just one episode. If it had been written directly for networks, for Netflix, I should say, or another streamer, he says he probably would have made less than 10000 per episode, and that's it. There's no more new money really going to come in worth mentioning. Yeah, that's says, about right. In comparison, uh, he wrote one episode of Everybody Loves Raymond some 20 years ago. So far, that's earned him $90,000. 
and he still earns three to $4,000 a year from it. So Suits on USA is much more like Everybody Loves Raymond, one of the big sitcom hits. You know, that was a huge hit on, on the network television. Uh, uh, then, then he would compare Suits to any streaming hit. Uh, Raymond is still in syndication. My mom watches it for an hour a day. She used to watch it all the time. But now in rehab, between six and seven, there's a gap between what she wants to watch. And I'm like, yeah, Raymond, let's watch Raymond. So we're watching Raymond again, a solid, very well-written show with a good cast. And you can dip in anytime you want and watch an episode and it's going to work. Well, you know. Uh, so that's interesting. It, look, it, this TV writing, especially for network, used to be so lucrative that uh, I'll just give you an example. Danny Jacobson. Okay. If the name sounds familiar, it's because he was one of the showrunners on Roseanne back in the eighties. And, and, and mm-hmm. he wrote, he wrote 13 episodes, but he was the showrunner and one of the, one of the writers in the writer's room. He then went about creating mad about you. Okay. Good job there. Yeah. And he made so much money that when he was loaned out, so to speak, and I, I put that in, in quotes to, mm-hmm to a, a movie studio to write for one week, you know, can you come in and do some polish, you know, on, uh, punch it up, punch it up, up, up for one week. You know how much you got paid? Three, six figures, $300,000 a week. And this was in the nineties. Okay. I actually <laughs> said to the, his, that is just so much money for one week. And they said, look, the guy, look at how much he doesn't need to do this at all. Right. He just doesn't. So the, let's remember that everybody loves Raymond and mad about you and suits. You've hit the jackpot. Most people are not going to, you know, and again, uh, when this guy wrote that script for Raymond, he wasn't the creator of the show. He was just a guy who wrote one episode. He was in the writer's room, I believe, and then he got credit on at least one episode. So those are the jackpots. Most shows are never that big. Don't you really? But if you've just got an episode on one of those shows, if you're writing for other shows that aren't as big and, and you don't have one script, but you've got 10 script or 15 credits to your name, that can really add up. You know, you've got 10 or 20 credits to your name over the years on lesser shows. They're not all going to be playing in syndication for 20 years like Raymond is, but they are going to be somewhere. And so, yeah, you might, you know, that money you make will decline over the years as shows, you know, decline or disappear. Uh, so, you know, yes, the money made from Raymond and every and Mad About You and such, those are outliers. But the clear point is that you're a writer on a show, you could make a living. You didn't have to hit the jackpot, you didn't have to be a creator, but you could make a living. And in comparison, we've got two women who are writers on Suits, two sisters who were on writing for the TV show Suits, mentioned their pay for one episode. Nora and Lilla Zuckerman, good for them. They say they wrote one episode that aired in 2016, and so far they've received $12,000 in residuals. So not as much as him. They're not one of the co-creators, but they worked on it. And now the 2016 today, that's over the last six or seven years. So that's like $2,000 a year, right? That's... That's not a lot of money, but if you've got 10 or 20 credits, suddenly maybe you're getting 20000 or 40000 a year, you can make a decent living. Most people don't hit the jackpot, but they could make a living with residuals. Whether you're an actor or a writer, those little episodes, that guest star appearance, they really add up. Well, you know, they a, say a, a, in, a couple things. In 2023, with the episode that they wrote airing on Netflix, they got $414.26. <laughs> well, you know, and there are some, uh, Lou Wasserman among them, by the way, who famously said, I don't pay the plumber every time I flush the toilet, uh, who would say, why am I paying you residuals? I paid you to write the thing. 
And now... Because you would pay the plumber every time they showed up. So every time you watch an episode of Raymond, you pay them because they are still entertaining people and making you money every time they air. If your plumber has to come back to the house, if you could show the episode once and never show it again to anyone ever, fine. Then you can pay me once. You want to show it again? You want to do reruns? You want to do syndication? You want to sell on DVD and Blu-ray? You want to put it on a fast channel? You want to put it on a streaming service? You're going to pay me again and again and again because it's entertaining people and making you money every single time it airs. Right. And that's really the point. If you're making Indeed. money from it, then that's why uh, that, that's how that happened. Here's one other point. Tell people your salary. Tell your coworkers. Tell your friends. Be upfront about it. Do not be shy. The only people who benefit when you don't tell people what you make is management. And they hate it when people share their salary across industries. Do it anonymously if you need to, but share your salary. Share what you're making at a restaurant, at a, at a bookstore, at an at a auto company, whatever. There's no benefit to you by keeping your salary secret. The only thing that can happen is you go, wait, what? How much do you get? You know, really, that the only people who benefit are management. Uh, and that's why I want to announce right now that the money I make for Showbiz Sandbox, it's, it's more than I can count. Wait, what? You make money? <laughs> well, I can't count it. That's all I can say. I just can't count it. Yeah, that's really, that's the, probably the proper yeah. way to say yeah, that. But- and what I would say uh, to that point is there is a, uh, a couple spreadsheets that go around uh, infamously or famously uh, about media companies, especially in New York uh, and in London, uh, how much they pay freelancers, how much they pay editors. And it's all anonymous. You don't really know who's, yeah. who's uh, adding the, the quotes to it or, or who's adding the the figures, but they all seem to be very accurate because everybody comments on it saying, oh yeah, no, I got that. Or, oh no, that was two years ago. They've gone up $10, $10 or they've gone down, uh, you know, to, you know, a thousand dollars per week on that, whatever it is. Uh, it seems to work because it's kind of made media companies, uh, most of the time kind of adhere to, to pay every freelancer the same. That's right. And people died. That wraps yes. up inside baseball. People died. I'm sorry, Sperling. They keep doing it. It frustrates I, you. I what have, can we do? I have uh, put in a call to who I thought was the boss. And Death. Yeah. I, Death. God, I don't know. I, 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 I can never recognize him. He's got this hood on. and He wants to play chess? Yeah. I, it's I just, confusing. It's very, and I can never really see his face. So I'm trying to figure out who it is. It's impossible. Well, Ellen Fitzhugh is about to, or has seen his face. Uh, lyricist and librettist Ellen Fitzhugh died at the age of 81. She is the Tony and Emmy-nominated lyricist and librettist. Uh, after a lifetime of work on stage and screen, she had a really interesting career. Uh, she collaborated with luminaries like Harold Prince, William Finn, Henry Mancini, Susan Stroman, Adam Gattel, I never know how to say his name, James Lapine, and just last year, Michael John Lacusa. If you enjoy musical theater at all, those names loom large. She was never a household name, never quite had the big critical or commercial hit her talent suggested, but those in the know admired and worked with her. And one project stands out for me, the Disney animated film, The Great Mouse Detective. Did you ever see it? Of course. 
You did? Okay, yeah. I think it's really good. She and her regular composer, Larry Grossman, partnered with Henry Mancini on two songs for the film, both performed by Vincent Price, who played the rat Moriarty. Uh, He sang The World's Greatest Criminal Mind and Goodbye So Soon. Many marked the Disney Renaissance with The Little Mermaid, but no, it really started with The Great Mouse Detective, a delightful spin on Sherlock Holmes. Her two songs make you wish they'd written more, and the movie itself called out for a sequel. I don't know why they didn't do it, but it was a big success both critically and commercially especially after the collapse of the Black Cauldron and that let the animators at Disney really catch their breath as a new generation took over Oliver Company came out next it was an even bigger hit it's the first animated film to gross 100 million dollars worldwide not adjusted for inflation but its reviews were much weaker but those two hits helped everybody say all right we're still in the animation game and then came The Little Mermaid Also dying this week is Bob Barker, the host of The Price is Right. He died at 99. And I love this. Somebody called him the patron saint of sick days. I think that's about great. And Sperling's got jokes. Yeah, Danny Jacobs is not the only one who can write jokes. I can write jokes, too. So I want $300,000 a week. And that's, you know, it's not even adjusting for inflation. You know, I'm letting you go on 1990s figures here. Oh, it's coming. It's coming, baby. Just tell us the jokes. So Bob Barker. Of course, he hosted The Price is Right for, what, like 35 years from 1972 mm-hmm. to yeah, 2007. Yeah. Uh, he was the game show host who came the closest to being 100 years of age without going over. <laughs> because, of course, you'd spin the wheel and you know, you'd have to. <laughs> very good, yeah, very yeah. good. Uh, by the way, Bob Barker is hearing Johnny Olson exclaim right now, Bob Barker, come on down. You're the next contestant at the Pearly Gates. Not bad, not bad. Um, uh, 300,000? I'm not sure. Anyway, writer, actor, and producer Arlene Sorkin has died at 67. Her first big break was an improv in New York City as one of the members of the High Heeled Women, a troupe managed by Warren Light, who is now overseeing one of the Law & Order shows. She got a regular role on the soap opera Days of Our Lives, playing the outspoken and heavily accessorized Calliope Jones from 1984 to 1990 and off and on after that through 2010. In the midst of that run, she played a sexy maid on the primetime dramedy duets for two seasons, starting in 1987. She hosted the clip show America's Funniest People in 1990 for another two years. That didn't end well. She even wrote some episodes for the cartoon series Tiny Toon Adventures. But it was a dream sequence on Days of Our Lives that led to her most famous role. Sorkin was costumed as a jester for the scene, and her college friend Paul Denny happened to see the episode. Now, he was a co-creator of Batman, the animated series. It co-starred Mark Hamill as the voice of the Joker and is considered by hardcore fans to be the greatest adaptation of Batman in any form. I almost spilled water on my laptop. Now, Denny decided to cast Sorkin as the voice actor of a character called Harley Quinn, a villain intended for just one episode. Of course, that led to her doing the character on TV, video games, animated films, and the like for years to come. So she is famous for being the voice of Harley Quinn. But she later co-created the sitcom Fired Up, which starred Sarah Lawrence and Leah Remini, as well as the show she worked on How to Marry a Billionaire. She was executive producer. That co-starred Terry Garr. She also co-wrote the picture film Picture Perfect, a romantic comedy starring Jennifer Aniston. And she was married to producer-writer Christopher Lloyd of Frasier fame. 
Not the actor from Back to the Future, but the writer-producer who worked on Frasier. Talk about hitting the jackpot. According to The Hollywood Reporter, it was Sorkin who did the original voice of the guest caller calling in Frasier every episode that began the episode. She would talk to him about whatever, and then later, a guest star would come in and dub in their voice. So it was always her that uh, Frasier Crane was talking to. And in fact, as a little nod to her, she cameoed in the final episode alongside a monkey. That must be an inside joke. <laughs> I don't know that. But we talked about the strike at the beginning of the show, and we're going to talk about a strike at the end of the show. David Jacobs, the creator of Dallas, died at 84. Uh, the show was a top 10 hit by 1980, but an actor's strike back then helped turn it into an absolute phenomenon. It premiered as a miniseries that no one had much hope for, but it did well enough to come back for a second season of 24 episodes. Remember those days? And by the end of the third season, another 25 episodes uh, that ended ended in March of 1980, it was ranked number six for the season. A top 10 hit, a big leap from number 40 one year earlier. So this show was red hot when its season ended in March of 1980. That March finale ended with someone shooting the evil J.R. Ewing. Then came the summer break. Then came the writer's strike. Then came a long, long, not a writer's strike, an actor's strike that delayed and delayed and delayed the next episode of Dallas, the one that would reveal who shot JR. Nobody had anything to talk about for like nine months, eight months between when the show ended and then when the show debuted in November rather than September, like it normally would have. It ended a little early, March rather than May. The actor strike delayed the start of the new season. So you had this endless buildup of people going, who shot JR? Even the Queen Mother got into it on a reception line. Larry Hagman was there and she said, you, you can tell me who shot it. But Larry Hagman didn't know. So, you know, it, that helped turn the show number one or number two for the next five years. He also did Knott's Landing. He got a big break writing Family, the prestige drama from Aaron Spelling, a prestige drama from Aaron Spelling. I'll repeat that again. He never made that mistake again. He also had a producing <laughs> credit on some other great shows, notably Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and Homefront, a very good show that introduced Kyle Chandler. I don't think I can watch it online. He was also involved deeply in Bodies of Evidence, the last show George Clooney starred in before finally hitting pay dirt with ER. So if you want a trivia question, what was the show George Clooney starred in right before ER? It's Bodies of Evidence. And finally, he had a producing credit on the miniseries Lace. J.R. Ewing, Who Shot J.R., one of the most famous episodes of all time on television. And the miniseries Lace has one of the most famous lines of dialogue. TV Guide called the line the greatest in history. I don't think he wrote it, but Phoebe Kate says, incidentally, which one of you bitches is my mother? <laughs> are we allowed to say that on, uh, I guess we are allowed. On a podcast? Yeah. You may have to bleep me out. I don't know. You may have to bleep me out. But uh, there you go. A lot of people died. I thought they were interesting this week. I'm sorry, but uh, you know, I thought it was fun. Well, we've only been an hour and 90 minutes. So Yay! <laughs> an hour and 90 that's minutes. Wow. That's, that's, that's a good trick. Yeah, so <laughs> these are my jokes, people. You know, I, again, $300,000. You can send the check to... Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but you know what I'm not kidding about is that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever the Apple podcast thing. I don't think it's called iTunes anymore. I think it's called Google Podcast. I mean, uh, can, can you can you rate and review them there? Yes, you can. Uh, certainly on wow. Google Podcasts and the Apple Podcasts and the Microsoft Marketplace. Uh, you can no longer get us on Stitcher since Stitcher's going away. So there's that. Um, but we're on Spotify. You can get us there. So, you know. 
please do subscribe to us, rate and review us where, you, where and when you can. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us and ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter. At Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. I guess it's called X now. Uh, we're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find our page and like it. Again, all that information on our website showbizsandbox.com. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's help control the pet population, have your pets spayed or neutered.com. See Bob Barker for the reference to that particular line there. But you know what? You should see michaelgiltz.com if you really want to see all of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry. It's all aggregated on michaelgiltz.com. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Breaking news, Sperling, it has to do with exhibition. ESPN has entered into a theatrical distribution agreement with the Theater Sports Network. They will be airing like 75 games during the next college football season, including all the bowl games on New Year's Day, like the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, and so on. If you don't want to sit at home and watch it, you can go into a movie theater and watch them there. Very interesting. I, I, I sent you a link. I, We're helping each other out all the time, Sperling. Goodbye, everybody. 